Hi, welcome, welcome back, back to, to Unsighted, Unsighted. Internet's <laughs> Least Relatable Podcast. I'm Chantel. And I'm Amy. <laughs> Do you want to redo that? No, I don't. This is a great start to our Diamond Jubilee. This is our 75th episode, which I'm very excited about. I can't believe we've been doing this for that long. If you're far along in our journey, Holla. thank you so much for sticking with us. If you're just joining us now, uh, welcome. We're at the end of a series on Shakespeare's Henriad. So if you would like to know how the heck we got here, you can go back to our episode on Richard II and follow along with the history. That was way back in April. It was just hilarious because Richard II does not immediately precede Richard III. No, that was way so long ago. So many months it has been since then. You're like, oh, Richard II, cool. And then Richard III, linear. Nope. Nope. You got some Henrys to go <laughs> through. about a million episodes of Henry to get through first. But today, if you just want to listen to this episode, we're going to be talking about Richard III, which is probably my favorite in the Henry ad. Agreed. Same. He's very fun to talk about. Well, like, I think part of it is also the novel idea that they found his body in a parking lot while we were in school. Yes, that's true. When did they do that? Oh, fuck Chantel. <laughs> March 2015. Yeah, that was like in the middle of our degree. Right smack dab in the middle. Yeah, they found him um, and there's a picture of his skeleton, which is unpleasant to look at, and then his <laughs> tiny little coffin because he is just bones, so they did not need a full coffin, I guess. That's how that works. So did they just like bury his bones at the time? Yeah, he was killed in the, in the Battle of Bosworth Field, which we'll get to today. So they didn't, they barely buried him at all. Uh, his body was taken to Greyfriars Leicester where he was buried in a crude grave in the Friary Church. Then there was a dissolution of the friary it was demolished his tomb was lost and then in 2012 there was like this whole project to try and like find him and then they did in 2015 wow i wonder how they identified him because it's not like they were putting out dna samples of richard iii at the time that he was alive no but she had like dna sample and then there are mm. descendants right that's true that makes sense because royalty through his sister anne of york yeah that's yeah. fair um also would you say that the friary was paradise because it was paved would you say that they paved paradise and they put, put up, up a parking, parking lot? lot yeah yeah thank you so much okay that was good <laughs> so yeah we're gonna be talking about shakespeare's richard the third so if you have listened to the rest of the henry ad you know that in henry the fifth the chorus tells us what the heck is going on because we don't get to see what the heck is going on because we are but people who are sitting in a place in london and we are not going to france and they skip a bunch of crap in that play because it would be super long otherwise and we don't want that. In Richard III we see most of what the heck goes on but Richard lies through his teeth the whole time so he tells everyone else other stuff and then he comes to us and he's like by the way I actually was lying there so he's just giving us the DL throughout the whole play of like what his actual plans are. Yeah it's very meta and I'm very surprised that I didn't lean into that more in my essays. Uh, I am too. <laughs> like, that doesn't fit with the theme. Maybe there was so much other stuff to talk about. Well, there is. We'll get to it. Would you like to hear a summary of this play, Amy? I kind of already know what happens. It's true. But yes. Okay. For everyone else amongst us. Yeah, for those of us who didn't take a, what, 9 a.m. Shakespeare class? That was the best class. I think it was noon, though. I think noon was just 9 for you. Yeah. Noon was 6 a.m. for me. <laughs> 
noon o'clock somewhere. The play opens with kind of what we were talking about last week. Richard decides that since he was born with a physical abnormality, he is unlovable and he is going to make everyone else around him miserable too. He's going to set his sights on the crown and that's all that he's going to care about for the rest of the play. To get to the crown, there's two main guys who are helping him. Those guys are Buckingham and Catesby. May I interject? Yes. Like he presents himself as such a villain. Like he literally, he says, since I I cannot prove a lover to entertain these fair, well-spoken days. I am determined to prove a villain. Yeah, basically. Like, he's he's not just, like, being like, I'm a bad boy. He's like, I am the villain of this play. Welcome. Yeah, we mentioned that he is incel behavior last time, but, like, that's exactly incel mentality. Yeah, so he describes his wife. So, when discussing his relationship with Lady Anne, he says, I'll have her, but I will not keep her long. It also makes me annoyed that, like, he just keeps going with this after he... <laughs> He convinces someone to love him, you know? It's so incel behavior. He's like, I won't keep her long. Like, I'll have her, but I won't keep her long. I feel like that's like, you know, incel behavior. She's such a Stacy that he doesn't even want her, actually. <sighs> yeah, I know too much about this culture. Clearly. It's awful. I don't recommend looking at any forums about it. So most of the play is his schemes to become king in the place of his oldest brother, who's currently king, Edward IV. Yeah, the one who married for love. Yes. So the first victim of Richard is his second oldest brother, George, the Duke of Clarence. Richard has planted rumors around to make Edward suspicious of George because Edward at the time is very sickly and suggestible. And one thing that he's done is he's like spread rumors that there's a prophecy that Edward will be betrayed by someone who begins with the letter G, which is you would think is George, except Richard is the Duke of Gloucester. Yeah. And he's frequently called Gloucester because they go by the their titles. Yeah, so he kills his brother. Mm, yes. And he starts off by being ironically merciful. He says to an unhearing Clarence, I do love thee so that I will shortly send thy soul to heaven, you know? Yeah. But he doesn't want to send Clarence to hell because Clarence isn't the monster that Richard himself is. Clarence is just a means to Richard's end of becoming king. Yeah. Poor George. Poor George. He gets arrested and he gets sent to the tower and Richard is like, oh, I'll try to get you out. And then to us, he's like, I'm actually not going to try to get him out. I'm actually going to make sure he stays there and dies. Right? He's like, mm, yeah, I'll get you out. I'll get you to heaven first, though. <laughs> Which is like, you're going to kill a guy and you're going to be like, I'm sending him to heaven. Like, mm. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. You're not yet the representation of God on Earth. That comes in the next play we're going to cover. Ooh, exciting. Spoilers. Henry the seventh? Eighth. Henry the eighth. Cool. Rad. There's no seventh. Okay. So after that, Richard gets news that Edward is very unwell. He's taking a turn for the worse. And to us, he's like, ha, nice. And then... <laughs> Got him! <laughs> so he plans to have George killed, like you said. As you do. So that he can be next in line of the brothers when Edward finally inevitably dies because he's very ill. Yeah. And so he can go to Edward and be like, I tried to save George. Yeah. But I could not. <laughs> and now he's gone. I will take care of your son. And it's your fault, probably. His other plan that he reveals to us now is that he plans to marry Anne Neville, who's the widowed wife of Henry the Sixth son, who we talked about last time. So basically, like, he killed Henry the Sixth, her father-in-law, and his brothers killed her husband. So he basically tells us, like, it would be a fun challenge, you know? Yeah, he's like, this woman was supposed to be Queen of England at some point in time, so let's... 
<laughs> Why not? It's like the default. Also, it's kind of politically advantageous. Yeah, because like he's trying to do the same thing that Edward is doing, which is like joining the Lancaster York line, right? Yeah. And the Nevilles were quite, as we'll see with Henry the Seventh coming up in this play. Yeah. The Nevilles are essentially what becomes the Tudor line. So there is some like romance incest. Okay, so we cut to Anne, who is by herself. She's blaming Richard for both of the deaths, the death of her husband and father-in-law and cursing his name and stuff. And then Richard comes in and they argue back and forth for a bit. And he's like, I know a better place for you, my bedchamber. <laughs> Which is very, like, hard ticket to why I saved you the best seat in the house on my face. Okay, I'm interjecting. Okay. On behalf of our audience, who's like, what the fuck is a hard ticket to Hawaii? <laughs> Please do. So, <laughs> picture this. Amy, Chantel, <laughs> Rez, because we lived in residence at the time. That's Canadian for dorms. Right. Amy, Chantel, dorms, nothing else to do. First year, brand new <laughs> friendship. Don't know her well yet. She took me to the forest. She didn't kill me. That was good enough. And her and one of her other friends, because Chantel has a their friends. <laughs> made me watch this movie called The Hard Ticket to Hawaii, which is like a fever dream. I was thinking about this yesterday and I was like, is this even a real movie? I think about this movie like every week. I haven't seen it anywhere. So anyways, the things you need to know. There's a big snake. There's a frisbee with razor blades. <laughs> and there's the iconic line that I saved you the best seat of the house. Right here. On my face. On my face. Oh yeah. And then she res does she respond with She does. What is your nose bigger than your dick? Yes. <laughs> See? Iconic. I don't recommend watching it. <laughs> But, like, I kind of think it's a cultural experience. I don't know whose culture, but some. Somebody's. It's someone's. <laughs> Maybe someday we'll rewatch it and do a timeline scavengers analysis of the whole thing. Oh my gosh, that would be so good. <laughs> but for now, that's all you need to know. That's the state that I entered my friendship with Chantel. And now I am here. And it's a beautiful friendship. It's great. We're doing, we're thriving. So if you want to be friends with someone forever, watch a hard ticket to Hawaii with them. Trauma bonding. <laughs> so he says that to her and she's like all offended. Yeah. And then he's like, no, listen, I am really into you. In fact, if you don't love me, I would rather not be in the world. So here is my sword and you can just stab me in the chest. And he like bears his chest, which is very scandalous. And should have taken one from the team and stabbed she him. She almost did. And then he says that he only killed them, like her husband and father-in-law. Her loved ones. Because her beauty drove him to it. And she's like, hmm, you're making some good points. I am pretty hot. Shit women will do for compliments, <laughs> right? This is why we need the Barbie movie. This is why we need the Barbie movie. <laughs> For the girl power, girl boss, body confidence. Yeah, this is just Kendom Land or Ken Landum. I don't remember which one it is. I don't know. I saw it one I haven't seen it. You haven't seen it? I haven't it? seen it yet. I'm seeing it on Monday. <gasps> That's all you need to know. Okay. And she's like, hmm, yes, I'm listening. And he's like, okay, well, if you don't want to kill me, just say the word and I'll stab myself. And she's like, I don't really want to like be the cause of your death, but I don't like you still. He's like, well, if you're not going to kill me, then you have to marry me. Those are the rules. She's like, I'm not going to marry you, but I will take your ring and we can meet at a later time. And then the next time we see her, they're married. So I assume they just smashed or something. I mean, he's good with words. He's very persuasive. Like he has some like banging lines. And that's one of the things that, so I wrote a paper about Richard III. So I have some ideas here. He was a very like Machiavellian ruler. We talked about this, I think in the past in a previous podcast, but basically being like a Machiavellian Machiavellian ruler is someone who is cunning, scheming, and unscrupulous, especially in politics or in advancing one's career. So he is like this idea of like this guy who's super charismatic, but he's also like not 
appealing to look at per his own words Mm -hmm. so he can't like charm his way there so he like wordsmiths his way there kind of thing i mean that is a form of charm yeah it is which is why he gets so far where he is like he's he's smart and he's good at getting what he wants when he wants it but it's also like this entire play is part of like the tudor propaganda against machiavellian rulers it's like how really conventionally attractive people are extremely boring yes he's he's like the opposite of that yeah you know when like we were telling him to get a personality yeah last week Mm -hmm. like he has one it's just a bad one it's just a bad one we want him to improve his personality like he has so much potential he just chose the wrong path he was like i can't be loud he put all his stats in charisma but then he chose a chaotic evil alignment yeah agreed okay so we get to queen elizabeth edward's wife formerly known as lady gray the widow that edward married and she's talking to her family her brother lord rivers and her two sons from her previous marriage lord gray and the marquis of dorset so she's telling them that she's scared that edward is dying because she's worried if richard becomes lord protector which he is next in line for with george in prison she and her sons will be in danger because he does not like them and the two noblemen who are on edward's team walk in they are buckingham and derby derby if you recall buckingham is going to soon switch over to richard's team yep they come in and they say edward wants to help richard get along with queen elizabeth's family and then richard busts in and he's like who says i'm not getting along with queen elizabeth's family these are rumors that are being spread about me people were saying that i was saying bad things about them but i wasn't and the only reason they're saying that is because i'm so nice and they have nothing else to say about me (laughs) imagine being that full of yourself Just absolutely, like, bold-faced lying to their faces. He's probably said stuff, like, in front of them about them. Yeah. And then it's like, I can't believe you think that I would say such a thing. And then he accuses Queen Elizabeth of doing the things that he did, which are getting George locked up in the tower and wanting Edward dead, which we know that he is the one who did because he told us. Yeah. And then while they're all arguing about this, who should walk in but the former Queen Margaret, Henry VI wife. Yeah, I like that she's still around. She's still just chilling. You know, like, there's so many women. Everyone's like, we thought you were banished? Banished? What are you doing here? And she's all like, I am bold French woman. So she comes in and she says some evil stuff and she gives some prophecies. So she blames Richard for taking her husband and son from her, which he did. Then she tells Queen Elizabeth that she's stolen the queenship from her and Margaret should still have it, which I guess is kind of true. And then she prays that Queen Elizabeth will live to see her husband and sons die like Margaret did. And then she curses Hastings, Rivers, and Dorset to die early deaths because they stood by while her son was murdered. And then she curses Richard to mistake his friends for his enemies and vice versa and to never sleep peacefully. So Queen Elizabeth is going to be ruined. Hastings, Rivers, and Dorset are going to die. And Richard is going to have no strong allies forever. Which I mean is still true to this day. Yeah, basically. He's not a favorite king. Everyone leaves. Richard hires two guys to kill George in the tower. And they do. They stab him and they drown him. Both. Because why Why pick just one? One was not enough. One was not enough. Yeah, I mean, you've heard of Rasputin. It's after this, but you know, <laughs> takes a lot to kill someone sometimes. Sometimes. They were just being lazy, I think. They like half stabbed him and then were like, that's, that's enough. There's a bucket of wine here. Stick his head it's in it. It's hard. It's hard to stab someone. I just feel like you're saying that in a way that is speaking from experience and <laughs> it makes me concerned. Okay, well like consider, consider animals, right? Right? Like those of us who eat meat. 
Like, bones are hard. Mm. Like, have you ever, like, cut through a steak and you hit a piece of bone and you're like, god damn it. You know, like, people are squishy, but they're not squishy all the way through. I don't recall. But yeah, it's like stabbing someone in the ribs sounds like it would be hard. You need to pick, like, a particular spot. Mm. Yeah, there's a reason all of your, like, important, important organs are protected by your rib cage. Yeah. It's a cage. It is a cage. But there's also, like, whenever stabbing is depicted, it usually happens in the stomach. Yeah, which is not a great way of killing someone. No, it's not. It sounds like a really crappy way to die. So Edward is trying to make everything right while he's still very sick and he wants everyone to make peace. So he pulls in like his nobles and his wife and her family and he's like, everyone kiss and make up and they're like, okay. And he's also sent a letter ordering George to be freed from the tower since he was previously imprisoned and sentenced to death. Edward does not know at this time that Richard intercepted that and then sent like second people to go kill him. And then Richard walks in and he also is ordered to make up with everyone and he does for sure. I'm sure they're going to have no problems for the rest of the play. And then Queen Elizabeth is like, okay, that's great. Can we bring George back now? And Richard is like, oh my God, I can't believe you would joke about something like that. That is just awful. She's like, what? He's like, everyone knows that George was killed on Edward's initial order. And they're all like, what? No, how could that be? It wasn't planned at all. And he's like, yes, somehow these lower like commoners took initiative. They were keeners. Fucking commoners with initiative. (laughs) And yeah, George is super dead and it's your fault, Edward. And Edward's like, oh no, that's awful. And he gets so sad that he just dies. (laughs) He just gets sick again and dies. Well, I'm not laughing at that. I'm laughing because it's silly. It is a little silly. I will give you that. Okay. So there's going to be a new king and it's going to be his son who's also named Edward. Prince Edward. Super fun. So Prince Edward rides into London. He's just a little guy. He's just a wee little lad. He's like 12, right? Or something? Yeah, he's like a kid. He's like the age that Richard II was, I think, when he... Oh, but he's smarter than Richard II. Oh, yeah. I mean, it doesn't take much. He's sharp as a whip. That's, whips are sharp, right? Yeah. Yeah. The sound they make is sharp. For sure. So he's very quick-witted and he's suspicious of Richard immediately. And he's like, are my other uncles also here? My uncles on my mom's side? My uncles that I actually like? And Richard's like, oh no, sorry, they couldn't make it. And meanwhile, he's like had them arrested and he's going to get them murdered very shortly. And then Lord Hastings comes in and he's like, oh, Queen Elizabeth has claimed sanctuary in a church with her youngest son, the young Duke of York. Basically, you can't go into a church and take someone who's claimed sanctuary because it's blasphemy. Correct. But uh, Hastings somehow convinces the Lord Cardinal to go with him to go grab and yoink the young Duke of York out of there because his reasoning is that, like, since he's so young, he doesn't have, like, the self-agency to actually claim sanctuary for himself and his mom can't do it for him. Um, I don't think that's how agency works, but okay. No. But you know how they thought that, like, kids weren't people? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Both kids are now with Richard and Richard tells them that he's going to lock them up in the Tower of London for their own protection. You know, you put things in the Tower of London for safekeeping. If there's any safe place. That's why George was there. The place that George just got murdered. And uh, they don't want to go there because, you know, George's ghost is around. York also says something really embarrassing about Richard's hunchback and everyone feels super awkward about it and kids say weird stuff all the time. Yep. 
So they go off to the Tower of London, and then Richard orchestrates that Hastings be killed. He was the first one who Margaret said was going to be killed, I think. Um, So Richard orchestrates that Hastings is killed for treachery because he doesn't seem to want Richard to be king in place of Prince Edward. Mm -hmm. So Richard walks in and he's like, oh, my arm is all shriveled. It must have been Elizabeth Lady Grey that cursed my arm to be shriveled, and everyone knows his arm's been shriveled since birth so Hastings like hesitates for a second and he's like uh yeah and he's like you hesitated you don't believe me Therefore, you're treacherous and kills him. And then Richard and Buckingham really easily convince the mayor of London that Hastings was a traitor and he deserved to get killed. And the mayor of London's like, absolutely. Yeah, I totally believe you as if he had confessed it to me. Yeah, I think like Edward's biggest mistake, like King Edward, not baby tower boy Edward, his biggest mistake was agreeing to let Richard be a Lord Protector. I don't know if he had a choice. He did. So in like- Oh, did he? In the real world, he did have choice he wanted richard to be appointed as lord protector dummy dumb decision because usually it goes to like senior members of the family so he could have gone to like any of the close people but here we are if only like a woman could be lord protector then the mom could have just done it she would have been really good at it yeah we would not have the royal family we have today we might have less colonialism we might have more we wouldn't have the church of england probably yeah that makes sense because um all because women weren't allowed to be in charge that's why we need the barbie movie that's why we need the Barbie movie. That's going to be the moral of this episode. Yeah. So then Richard and Buckingham continue plotting together. They plot to get everyone to ask Richard to take the throne by convincing them, like the people of London, that the princes are illegitimate heirs that Lady Grey cheated on King Edward. They're so keen to be like, oh, yeah, they're illegitimate. But like they were fine with freaking Henry the Sixth kid who was like, definitely not his kid. Yeah, he definitely was not even though he looked exactly like him in the movie he was definitely Suffolk's kid for sure they were not smashing they were not smashing which is fine you don't need to smash to have a good relationship no but you need to smash to have a child <laughs> you do need unless well, you're doing in vitro and they did not have that in that time you need to smash to have a child now it's questionable you don't necessarily need to for sure science <laughs> science rules so Richard in preparation for this plot for everyone coming to ask him to be king locks himself up in prayer so that he looks like he's always locked up in prayer. You know, like the second son who's very religious and doesn't want to be in power. Yeah. Just the classic, like, younger son. Classic moves. So he locks himself up in prayer and he waits for his guy, Buckingham, to come and, like, ask him to be king with all the other nobles from London. And they're all like, please, please do it. And he's like, oh, no, I really don't want to. I would rather not. I just really like to pray here with my Bible that I was holding upside down. Sorry. Um... I just am super committed to like Jesus and stuff. And they're like, if you don't become king, uh, we're just going to overthrow Prince Edward anyway, and then put some random on the throne and you don't want that. And he's like, oh, I really, I guess I don't want that. And I will do it if you guys insist. And they're like, we insist. He's like, okay, then I will do it tomorrow for sure. I will be crowned tomorrow. Thanks. <laughs> I am in the vein. <laughs> he is in the vein. So neck minute, Queen Elizabeth and her son from previous marriage and the Duchess of York, who is Richard and Edward's mom, yeah. are going to visit the young princes in the tower and they meet up with Lady Anne, Richard's wife, who is also going to visit Elizabeth's sons in the tower. While they're there all chatting, they get news that Richard is going to be 
crowned king. And Anne is absolutely distraught. She's like, oh my gosh, this will be the ruin of England. I never trusted him. I shouldn't have married him. I'm so sorry that like this is happening, Queen Elizabeth, because this isn't looking good for your sons. And Elizabeth is like, our girl Lizzie's like, it's fine. Like, it's not your fault. Just go do what you need to do. We'll figure it out here. And she gets let off. So King Richard is now king. He is now Richard III. Parking lot king. The parking lot king is gloating to his guys, Buckingham and Catesby, that he has like, all his plans has succeeded. But he's never happy. You know, he's never happy. So he's now worried that like, he could get overthrown and the princes could be put on the throne instead of him. Yeah, because there's the kid question. Like, if the kids are there, like, you can't have an heir to the other line. Yeah, because like, for now, people think that they're illegitimate heirs. But what about in a couple years when they start looking exactly like Edward? Yeah. So he plans to have them murdered. And Buckingham, like, you know, Richard hates when people hesitate. Buckingham's like, I don't know if we should be murdering children. Can I think about it for like a couple days? And Richard's like, "Mm, no, I'm gonna get some random to do it right now. Also, you're probably next on the chopping block, Buckingham. Yeah, straight to jail, Buckingham. (laughs) And then he, in the same breath, asks Catesby to spread a rumor that Anne is very sick because he also wants to off her. His plan is to marry his niece, Elizabeth's daughter, who's also named Elizabeth. They love doing this. Yeah, Elizabeth of York. And then Buckingham is getting worried. He's like, there's a lot of plans happening right now. Richard doesn't seem very happy with me. Are you mad at me? Can you please tell me? Also, can I have the earldom that you promised me? Because I would like some assurance that like I'm still in the plans here. And Richard's like, I am not in the giving vein today. He's not in the vein. He's not in the vein. He's not in the vein. This is our favorite line. This is our favorite line. We used to use it whenever we didn't want to do anything for class. Yeah. Like, I'm not in the vein. Anything. Want to go to Sam's with me? Not in the vein. I'm not in the vein to write this essay. (laughs) I'm not in the vein to go pee. I think that's just a you thing. I'm not in the vein to wait for the bus. Mm, yeah, not in the vein for the 124. Not in the vein for the 124. <laughs> okay, so Richard learns while he is gloating about his plans going great. He's like, all my plans are going awesome. Everyone is doing exactly what I say. Buckingham's going to get murdered. My wife is going to get murdered. It's going to be swell. The princes are going to get murdered. He learns that a bunch of his noblemen have turned against him and are joining this guy named Richmond in France. Amy, do you know who Richmond is? Would you like to explain? Or do you want to just carry on and we find out later? Do I remember who Richmond is? All will be revealed. But for now, he's just some guy who's opposing Richard. He's Henry VII. He's going to be Henry VII, yeah. Yeah, I could give a bit of background. So the Earl of Richmond, Henry VII, um, his mom, Margaret of Beaufort, was a descendant of John of Gaunt. You remember John of Gaunt? Yes. Of Bolingbroke's dad's fame? Yes. Sir Ian McKellen, the great Sir Ian McKellen. Yeah. And his father, Edmund Tudor, the first Earl of Richmond, so the Earl of Richmond, Henry VII, the second Earl of Richmond, was born to Owen Tudor and the dowager Queen Catherine of Valois. So Henry VII's dad, Edmund, was half-brother to Henry VI. So Richmond is going to be Henry VII, then he's part of the Lancastrian line, which is going up against the Yorks, which is Richard III's house. Correct. So Richmond is in France, and he's gathering all of Richard's nobles, and they're going to oppose Richard. And then meanwhile, Buckingham is in Wales, and he's also leading an army against Richard. So he's got like people coming from two different sides yeah. who are gonna go up against him because he's made nothing but enemies in his life. So he decides to go to battle and while he's on his way there, we meet up with Elizabeth again yeah. and Richard's mom. Yeah. 
they are mourning the kids and Margaret pops up. Of course she does. And she's like, haha, all my curses are coming true. You did live to see the death of your husband and sons, Elizabeth, and it's all because of me. Like, you don't need to be a bitch. <laughs> but that is Margaret all around, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit. So Richard rides up and his mom curses him to die bloodily. He tries to like stick his fingers in his ears and go like, la la la, I can't hear la, you, but he can. La, la, la. He can though. And then he's like, oof, that was rough, but we're going to swoop on past that. He takes Elizabeth aside to propose that he marry her daughter. And she's like, hmm, gross. Yuck. That's his niece. Yeah, yuck. And then he fawns for a while and he says it's the only way to avoid a civil war. And he uses his like plus 10 charisma and she's like, hmm, okay, I'll think about it. I'll ask her. And to us, he's like, what a dumb woman. I can't believe that she's already forgotten all the crap things I did to her family. What a bad time. <laughs> so then he carries on toward battle and he gets news that Richmond is now invading from France. And he starts to freak out a little bit because his side is not very strong. Like he doesn't have any strong allies. No one really wants to be there. So the night before battle, he tries to stir up his nobleman, but no one's really feeling it because the only reason they're with him is like out of fear. Yeah. But he does tell them that they outnumber Richmond's army three to one. However, however, we will look back at Henry V. They were outnumbered like five to one and they won because they were like the side that had the stronger motivation. And who has the stronger motivation here? Well, it's not the guy who already has the crown on his head, is it? It's not. It's not the guy who's got no friends. Yeah. It's definitely the guy who's like actually nice to his followers. And like, let's be real, Henry's always going to win in a war. Yeah, it's true. If your name is Henry, you are going to win any argument ever. Yeah, people are going to be like, your name, it's old. Okay. <laughs> um, You just need to like hold up your little name badge. Hi, I'm Henry. If you work in customer service and someone's being mean to you, you just need to be like, have you seen? Have you seen I'm Henry? And they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I don't need to speak to the manager. Yeah. You could have like a Karen, right? You know the Karen? I do. The Henry's like the opposite. You know, like Karens go up and they complain and they make life hard for people. <laughs> but Henry's goes up and they go, hi, I'm Henry. And like the customer service rep is like, oh my God, yes, here's everything you need. No company policy. No problem. Nothing to fret. And the Henry's like, oh my God, are you sure? Oh my God, thank you so much. Well, I really appreciate it. I love this for me. Oh my God, can I give you a five-star review? Do you get paid by commission? No, can I tip you? Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's a Henry. Henry somehow even has more charisma than Richard. Yeah. So then Richard goes to bed. Sleepy time. He has a little dream. Dream time. It's basically an encore of all the people that he murdered just popping across the stage telling him that he's going to despair and die in the battle the next day. And then they pop across to the other side of the stage to where Richmond is sleeping and they say that he will rule England. So I wonder how this battle is going to go. Then we get two speeches. We got the side by side of how people in the dream are responding to Richard and Richmond. Yeah. Now we get two speeches from Richard and Richmond. Richmond is very encouraging, inspiring. He's like, you guys are uh, my family. You stand by me. We are going to reclaim England for ourselves, for our children, for our children's children. Your honor will live on forever. Richard is like, these guys are trash. You think we can't beat these trash panda guys? These guys suck. And this little wimp who's coming after me, he's going to get crushed into dust. Crushed to dust. Yeah, that's a direct quote from Shakespeare. Yeah. Wimp is also in there. Of course. So in the battle, Richard's horse is killed. We all know this line. Say it with me, Amy. 
my, my kingdom, kingdom for, for a horse. horse. So he's walking around. He's like not accepting help from people who actually want to help him. Catesby actually tries to help him. And he's like, no, I can do it myself. And then he keeps yelling my kingdom for a horse. So like he's willing to give up his kingdom to not die, but he's not willing to like give up his pride to not die. Yeah. So it just shows the things that he values. Yeah. And like his entire thing is built on like things going his way. And when they start not going his way, he doesn't quite know how to respond. Yeah. Richard's all right when everything's coming up rich. Yeah, and then he's not. But then he immediately invents problems for himself, so nothing is ever all coming up, Richard. Richard is a self-sabotaging menace. Yes, he is. Richard could have benefited from therapy. So Catesby tries to help him. Catesby gets killed. Catesby gets off. Goodbye, Catesby. Richard then goes up one-to-one against Richmond. They have a little duel thing. Doesn't matter. Richard gets stabbed. Who stabbed who and who stabbed harder? Richard gets very stabbed. Very stabby stabby. This is where the York line goes night night <laughs> uh the lancastrians come out victorious on this one richmond is crowned in the field he becomes henry the seventh yeah so here's the thing i am a yorkist because i think they have the strongest claim to the throne but i'm not a richer the thirdest yeah but we'll get into it with the analysis because maybe this is not as true as it seems to be maybe this is propaganda we end off the play with henry the seventh now planning to marry king edward's daughter and saying that he's going to to unite the houses of York and Lancaster. So he's going to marry the person that Richard was going to marry. Yeah, because we all know that she is the bomb.com. Yeah, she seems pretty cool. Yeah. Would you like to do some analysis of this play? You do your spiel and I will jump in when I have information. Okay, so you know how previously we talked about how the spirit of Joan was like living on closer and closer to the throne? Yeah. So I argue that like the final resurrected doubling of Joan is in the culmination of the war of the roses in the king richard hmm. joan and richard are both the satanic villains of their plays talbot in henry the sixth part one he's like the english war hero yep. he calls attention to joan's devilishness when he calls her a foul fiend of france and a railing hecate yeah that's because he's a woman yeah you know that's because she's a woman yes well <laughs> which is i guess at this time a deformity much like richard had mm, yeah what is a woman if not just a deformed man Different physically, therefore devil. What is it if not Adam's rib? Exactly. Just a weird rib. So York also calls her an ugly witch and an enchantress and a sorceress and a foul accursed minister of hell. So those are some fun names that she gets called. Richard is called the devil's butcher by Margaret yep. and the devil by Henry. Yep. He also says after he kills Henry in the previous play, since the heavens have shaped my body so, let hell make crooked my mind to answer it. Basically, like his rise to kingship and his murder of Henry VI are like the epitome of England's descent from holy to satanic. He's like the reincarnation of like a hellish character. They also both forsake their families. Joan rejects her shepherd father to preserve the image of her noble birth. Mm -hmm. And Richard promises to murder his way to the English crown. And to do that, he murders his brother and nephews. Yeah. They also have, like, 
like similar language that they use. Joan says that she's destined to be the English scourge. Richard is called the scourge of God. So that's fun. Yeah. So basically like Joan got killed. She was like, I'm going to be haunting you guys. And so like her essence lives on in Margaret, who is French, but like the Queen of England. Yeah. And the Duchess of Gloucester, who is like straight up English. And then Richard, who's straight up the King of England. Right. And they all want to win the crown. Um, Margaret wants to win it for his son. The Duchess wants to win it for herself and her husband. Richard wants it for himself. Yeah. This is her curse. This is a fun little curse that she says. May never glorious sun reflects his beams upon the country where you make a boat, but darkness and gloomy shade of death environ you till mischief and despair drive you to break your necks and hang yourselves. Which is very much what Richard Kenna did. Yeah, it's very much like the entire War of the Roses also. <laughs> yeah, like you will infight and you will be your own undoing. Yeah, just absolute like mass deaths throughout the whole War of the Roses and then like simultaneously the death of like English values and English identity because they were supposed to be like the nation that represented God or whatever to them. Cool. I also have stuff to say about female subordination and subversive agency with Anne Neville. Would you like to hear about that? Yes. Rad. I'm so glad. So we know the War of the Roses. We're talking about it. They created political turmoil in England. Yes. But that turmoil was in like the masculine realm of politics and it gave us an opportunity for a rise in female political agency. Which is important because this play was published during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. Yes. Who is not the Elizabeth in this play. Who is not the Elizabeth in this play, but who is someone that um, will meet maybe next time. I don't know. I haven't read it yet. Shakespeare was really into her. He was like really simping. Yeah, but she did not like the doctor. So What doctor? Doctor who? Oh. <laughs> Okay, so toward the end of the War of the Roses, there's all these men who are like fighting to regain the monarchical power and the patriarchal power that's been lost during the Civil War. And there's like political battles and gender battles going on. And that's what shapes Richard III. So Richard uses a woman to regain power or kind of two. He uses one and tries to use a second one as political tools to regain power and like maintain his power. Yeah. But he marries Anne to bolster his claim to the throne because it's pretty dubious like there are heirs when he takes the throne yeah it's not like every other one where like someone gives up a crown or someone's rightfully fought for a crown or they make a pact and you decide where the crown's going like richard was just like mine <laughs> this is mine now thanks just yoink oh that was gonna go on this kid's head now it's on mine thank you so much he's just standing as tall as he can and he's like looking over the heads of the kids and he's just like i don't see anyone else who could wear this crown no child will beat the richard yeah that's a grinch reference everyone knows how the grinch stole christmas with jim gary yeah universally but Anne is cool so it like the play makes it clear that she's not just an instrument of male power she also has like an agency in the text and she like paves the way for women to have more power which is why we can be glorying in the reign of queen elizabeth the first so like historically by marrying her he got some strategic advances he 
became the king because he like, I'm sorry about this word, but he like, I wrote bastardizing the children of Edward the Fourth. No, he, he was accusing them of being illegitimate, of being bastards. Yeah. Yeah. So. And like, it was all based in political unrest. So everyone was like, okay, yeah, maybe they are illegitimate heirs. So there's all this unrest and public support that's like essential to him maintaining his title, which is why by marrying Anne, Neville, the Neville clan was very powerful. That gave him a strong foothold in the North. And then because it looked like Anne had forgiven him for like the death of her husband and her father-in-law, it might have subdued like the Lancastrian side's indignation about his side rising to power because, well, this is kind of like the unification of those two sides. Yeah. And then in like the play, his seduction of Anne gives him political advantage and the satisfaction of conquest because he's like, well, I think this will be a fun challenge. He kind of lures her into attacking him so that he can redirect and manipulate the conversation and demonstrate like how charismatic and skillful he is as an orator. Yeah. And then he like kind of claims that he's a victim somehow. He like repositions himself as a victim of love and he was driven by her beauty to kill her husband. Because that's how that works. That's how that works and that's fine. So because he's like planted that doubt in her mind that like maybe she's actually guilty that her husband died because she's too beautiful. This is why we need the Barbie movie. (laughs) And then he exposes himself. He like literally opens his shirt and exposes himself as like a vulnerable, effeminized Petrarchan lover offering his bare chest for her to penetrate with his sword. Gross. Not a good enough reason to use the word penetrate. <laughs> but that's that's what it is, isn't it? Yes, but no, thank you. And he knows that like because he's planted that self-doubt in her mind, she's not going to kill him. Then he's like, take up the sword again or take up me. And he only gives her the option of accepting his advance. And once it's done, he can like possess her and basically prove his masculinity. And the reason he succeeds is because Anne is thrown off by how aggressively passive he is in this scene and then he like seals the conquest with a ring on her finger yeah because he's manipulative as fuck mm-hmm. like he plays her like a fiddle he does and he tells us he wants to take her in her heart's most extremist hate to prove that he can win even the most unyielding prize yeah like he was like oh am i able to get the crown even though i know i'm not next in line for the throne yes can i get this woman also yes it, yes exactly so it seems like it's impossible for her to make a calculated strategic decision about her body and her like life and her future because she's literally standing over the body of her murdered father-in-law yeah and like not really seeming to make any decisions so the play erases her agency in deciding her political fate in that scene and like it seems that she is not really doing much but actually her marriage to richard gives her advantage because she's now like the queen yeah and it gives her safety because she's now like a member of the royal family she's returned to political favor as the wife of the king's brother. She is a Lancastrian, so she's no longer in danger from the Yorkists. Yeah. It's favorable for her, but the way that it was brought upon her and also how it played out was bad, bad, not good. Mm-hmm. For sure. It would work out for her if he wasn't so murdery. Yeah. Although she couldn't avoid giving Richard political advantage through marriage, she refuses to give him the monarchical advantage he seeks. So she did help him become king by marrying him, but she... She doesn't want him to become king. So she says she would rather die ere men can say God save the queen about her. Yeah. So she's like very kind of self-flagellating when things are happening around her. Earlier when he's like doing the 
I only killed them because you're so beautiful. She's like, well, I I will take my nails to rend that beauty from my cheeks yeah. if I believe that you killed my loved ones because of me. Like, that's not the compliment he thinks it is. It's not. <laughs> so both of those times she's like, I would rather harm come to me than be used as Richard's tool. Yeah. And eventually sh- she does die instead of be Richard's queen. Yeah. And then, like, she becomes a catalyst of his fall from power and, like, his death. Yeah. Because her ghost curses him right before his battle. And she says, tomorrow in the battle, think on me and fall thy edgeless sword, despair and die. Yeah. So, like, by unsettling him before his loss, she, like, eventually, eventually, after all this, helps to determine his fate like he determined her fate. Yeah. What else? Okay. Another last thing about marriage is Henry VII announces that he plans to marry Elizabeth, which is brilliant. It's going to unify the houses of York and Lancaster like everyone else was trying to do. Bada bing, bada boom. <laughs> Wrapped it up with a neat little bow. It secures his position as king, ends the War of the Roses, and it positions him as a foil to Richard because Richard wanted to have a very impurely motivated union with Lady Anne. Yeah. But Henry's marriage to Elizabeth is all about like a good wife is the crown of her husband and stuff. Like he... It's a wife guy. He is a wife guy. <laughs> um, Unlike his son. She's like a marker of female political power. She doesn't have a voice. She's not in the play. So she doesn't have any agency. But she doesn't get used as a tool by Richard and then like secures her position as Queen of England. Yeah. So she is the true winner of this play. Cool. Cool. That's it. That's all I have to say. Okay. I have some things to add. Um, I also wrote an essay about this on what ended up being my future anniversary, but I didn't know it. Fun. Which is cute. So I wrote a whole essay. It's called The Monster on the Throne, A Look at the Propaganda Surrounding Richard III. That's a fabulous name. Right. It's a great title. But basically, through this play, a book called Thomas More's The History of King Richard III and Hollinshed's Chronicles, Mm -hmm. Richard has been painted in a very unfair favorable light to serve the Tudor propaganda against the Yorkist claim to the throne. So by demonizing Richard III, the Tudors and their supporters successfully create a monster figure on which a moralizing tale that I was talking to you guys about earlier with the whole Machiavellian thing could be imposed. So Shakespeare's Richard III, specifically in this case, because that's what we're covering, presents a private and public monster figure that is both psychologically and physically terrifying. Yes. Because like I think that's one of the things about Richard is like, yes, he looks how he looks, right? But he was born with the body that he was born with, and that's not his fault kind of I'm thing. I'm going to look up what he actually looks like, because it sounds like he just had scoliosis, yeah. but then he's presented in the play like he is very obviously deformed. Like he has a very obvious hunchback. His arm is like very small. Yeah. Which is like, it doesn't have a reflection on someone's personality, but problematically in these plays it does. Yeah. And like, you can have pretty severe scoliosis that like does stop you from being able to function physically like walking and stuff but the way that he's just okay I'm looking at paintings of him and he just looks like a guy yeah so they probably wouldn't have painted him as hunchbacky because he was a king that is true that's valid but the way he's described in this play would make him incapable of fighting on a battlefield right oh yeah like incapable of doing a lot of things to the degree that they're presenting it like it would be like a physically limiting disability because that's what it is right like we joked about it before because I also have scoliosis and it's currently driving me insane yeah amongst all the other bone problems that I have 
have, but like it is like very much a disability. And like I can laugh about mine. We shouldn't have laughed about his, but he also put two kids in a tower and then killed them. <laughs> so um, I mean, where's where's the line? So, anyways, that's beside the point. But yeah, he's uh he's presented as a scare tactic for people who like would like a Machiavellian ruler because the tutor didn't want to have to deal with that again because they had many. So Richard talks about himself this way. He says that he is cheated of feature by disassembling nature, a deformed, unfinished, sent before his time into this breathing world, scarce half made up, right? If that was true, he would not have lived to adulthood. Like, I feel like there's some exaggeration here, right? And I think part of that also talks like society didn't and doesn't favor people who are born differently. I have a discovery about his physical appearance. Okay. So the scientists who dug him up said that they found a skeleton with a twisted spine and it was from idiopathic adolescent onset scoliosis. But while you can tell that it's curved in the skeleton, the physical disability wouldn't have been obvious visually while he was alive. It would have just meant that like his right shoulder was slightly higher than the other shoulder and it was probably disguised by clothing and probably only apparent to his closest family and confidants. He definitely didn't have a hunchback, but in the play, he's described as a poisonous bunch-backed toad. So his like physical abnormalities are very exaggerated. Yeah. Okay. So like I can joke about Richard Scaliosis because we have a very similar one. And we were talking earlier about how like he's a demon and stuff, right? And I think like he explains his devilish plots to us, like to the audience and develops himself as that demon, as that monster. And like as a form of propaganda, the villain guy telling you, hey, I'm a bad guy (laughs) kind of like puts an end to being favorable to him, you know? Yeah. It's not even ambiguous because usually like, yeah, like in real life, generally people who are the bad guys don't know they're the bad guys. Maybe they're sitting there. Eventually they're like, hey, are we the baddies? Yeah. But like usually people think that they're doing the right thing. Yeah. But he like explains his premeditation about everything that he does. You know, he's like, I'm just doing this to be evil. He's posting TikToks about it. (laughs) So y'all, wouldn't it be fun if I murdered my nephews? Yeah. So despite the fact that like Richard is presented as a demon and whatever, I think it's also important to understand that he's not just like a villain. He gets this like descend into madness. Yes. As well. That's a good point. Because he's eaten up by guilt. It gets to him. Christmas story style. Yes. With the ghosts. So in the end, Shakespeare's Richard is consumed psychologically by his guilt despite his initial indifference. When discussing his relationship with Lady Anne, he says, I'll have her, but I will not keep her long. Um, this line reveals the connection premeditation that makes Richard such a hateful character. He knows that wooing her is wrong. He comments on this by asking the audience, was a woman ever in this humor wooed? Was ever a woman in this, in this humor, humor one? Yeah. Because like you said, she's crying over her dead family members. Richard, like, he knows what he's doing. He's not being a dumbass. He doesn't seem to care about the moral consequences of his actions, though. He's aware of them, but he doesn't care about them. He mentions that he'd killed her husband and father. Like, it's something you just say over a beer. Yeah, it's just cash. Ultimately, though, the denial of his guilt is what consumes him when it leads to an outburst of his subconscious. So in his private dreams, as we mentioned, he hears the ghost of Buckingham tell him, Oh, in the battle, think on Buckingham and die in terror of thy, thy guiltiness. Um, Richard then tries to debate his way out of his self-contradiction to dismiss his very real nightmares, tangible evidence of his guilt. So it's kind of, who else has a dream? Is it is it Macbeth who has like a dream of guilt or is it Hamlet? Uh, oh, good question. I think it's Hamlet and it has to do with when he kills what's-his-face through the arras. Yes, he does see the ghost. Yeah. Anyways, we've talked about Hamlet's 
descending to madness and his descent to guilt at some point. Macbeth, they both see the ghost. The okay. ghost of Banquo appears in Macbeth and Hamlet's father appears to Hamlet. And I think, yeah, I think he also does see Claudius. Yeah. So anyways, there's like a lot of nightmares and guilt is a thing that happens. So the progression in which, you know, we see the evidence of Richard's guilt has to be presented to him as we move on throughout the story to overcome his self-denial, so to speak. It also parades the evidence in front of the audience and a perfect opportunity for anti-Yorkist propaganda. Yeah, that's fair. Like I said earlier, like it's very like straightforward. It's kind of like, hey, this guy's bad. Here's why. It's like, hey, remember watching all the bad stuff he did for the last two hours or so? Here's a reminder just lined up conveniently on stage for you. I have a question. Yeah. Do you think the ghosts were a representation of his guilt, like internally from his mind? Or do you think the ghosts were real? Like, do you think the ghosts were ghosts or do you think the ghosts were a dream? That's a good question. I come down strongly on this one, so I want to hear what you have to say first. They must be real. Yeah, because they appear to both of them. Yeah. If they were just yeah. Richard's imagination, they wouldn't also appear to Richmond. And I don't think Richmond knows everyone that Richard killed either. Yeah. Hmm. But yeah, he definitely does like feel guilty after they appear to him. Yeah. You know what? Interesting. We talked about Joan and Richard being similar, but Margaret's also monstrously depicted as a character in this play. Yes. Yeah. They have a bit of a back and forth. So like Richard calls Margaret a foul wrinkled witch, as you mentioned. She calls him a poisonous bunchback toad, an elvish marked abortive rotting hog. Yep. She attacks not only his physicality, but also like the shame he brings as a misshapen outlier on his noble family. She calls him the slave of nature and the son of hell. Thou a slander of thy mother's heavy womb, thou loathe issue of thy father's loins. Oh, yikes. Yeah, yeah. Um, So he's unnatural, not only in his own words, but in the words of someone who is also a monstrous figure in their own right. Yeah, there's a lot of ableism in this play. Yeah. Which is, like, not good. It's not great. Like, I feel like there was too long a time in media, like plays and cinema and stuff, where yeah. having a physical abnormality was, like, an external sign that you had a twisted mind. And I think that's not great. Yeah, or that you weren't good enough. Like, I think of all the rom-coms who, like, if you take off a girl's glasses, suddenly <laughs> her disability, like, not being able to, like, see is, like, a disability. It just depends on where it lands and if you can, like, wear glasses to fix it. Kind of thing. Oh, I'm aware. I can't see for shit. Yeah, like you can't walk without your glasses or contacts. Like you can't find your glasses. These are adaptive devices. These are like accessibility devices that I need to use every day to get around and navigate the world. I would not be able to like make my way past my house that I know very well without them. Yeah, but in the early aughts, late 90s, you know, if we took away your glasses, you'd be pretty yeah <laughs> you'd be good enough and i feel like this play is like you can't be good if you are deformed like not good enough but good writ large yeah i feel like the first one to like kind of counteract that was like quasimodo in notre dame yeah because quasimodo is like awesome yeah so richard the third you know presents a depiction of himself like the play depiction of him that has survived throughout the centuries tudor influence ensures that the portrait of richard is rooted in his monstrosity and tyranny through the this depiction, a 
manages to create a propaganda that harshly criticizes the Machiavellian ruler and also like the fact that he's one dimensional that he is like evil and deformed and etc etc makes Richard digestible because it's easy to see him as one thing we don't need to think of him as a complex person right like his relationship with his wife seems to be terrible but we don't actually know what happened right yeah that's true like she might in real life not have hated him as much we also don't see like most of their marriage <laughs> yeah like we don't see any of their courting or anything and like yeah you could be like oh well you know in that time women didn't have the ability to do anything and who cares how they marry blah 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 blah, blah. but like we don't know if that's true yeah right because i'm pretty sure i read an account that he did mourn her after her death well i'm sure that they actually had a relationship i'm sure that it wasn't just like purely political yeah so by depicting the private psychological and physical monstrosity of richard iii these works undermine any redeeming qualities that he might have, making it easy to scapegoat him as a ruler. This demonization that, you know, was happening throughout his life and after elevated and secured Henry VII's claim to the throne, and also the Tudors' claim to the throne in general. They were able to catapult themselves into sainthood and then into godhood with Henry VIII, and were able to control their own stories in that sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And, like, we still talk about Richard III today, like we were excited to do his play because we were like oh my god he's so like he's so sneaky you know like he has so much he's doing so much he's just fun like he's a really fun character to talk about yeah and we didn't think that about anybody else and it's because he has this vibe to him this like oh he's a bad guy villains are fun villains are fun it's like Hades yeah <laughs> villains are fun except you know don't kill kids yeah but here we are so there's a part where he bears his chest and he's like yeah Anne penetrate me with your sword you know yeah so like he's taking on the feminine role in that yeah you know gay people don't exist yet when he's being charismatic he's very like fawning and like submissive so he does take on like yeah to get what he wants he takes on like a feminine role whereas joan took on a male role to get what she wanted whereas joan took on a male role but you know who else took on a feminine role is the original richard that we talk about richard the second like he was very mm, effeminate yes. all the time yeah but for him it wasn't a bit that would just was who he was and i think it's interesting that like Shakespeare wasn't a Yorkist. <laughs> Shakespeare didn't like the Yorks, but both Yorks that we see in this series have moments where they're like very effeminate. Yeah. I just think that's a point that we can make. That is a point. So on a scale of being able to quote one of your favorite professors in a paper to him to six years later realizing you made a typo... <laughs> when you were citing him, how did you like this play? I think I like this play being able to cite my favorite professor in a paper and then also brilliantly expanding on that citation. So he writes a note that's like, I never thought of that before. I really love this play. Like, this is one of my favorite Shakespeare plays. <laughs> yeah. How would you rate this play, Amy? I would rate it as well analyzed and discussed, Amy. You're back where you belong, as it were. Oh. Keep up the good work. Oh. Hey. I had like a really bad rut of essays for a period of two months because I was applying to grad school and mm. I was like, I don't have the energy to do multiple things. But this was my comeback paper. I love that you had a comeback paper and I love that he recognized that you had a comeback paper. Yeah. That was a great professor. 
maybe we'll send him this episode. Oh, God. Yeah, I really love this play. I love talking about this play. I love talking about Richard. I think that he's like a super fun character. And an interesting king. I do believe that there's propaganda in it. I don't believe that like he was actually like this. But I think that if we remove any (laughs) historical notions and just step into the world of fiction for a moment. Yeah. Like he's a fascinating character to analyze. Like if he hadn't actually killed real children in real life, like he would be such a fun character. But like, do we know that he did that? Like, is it certain that he actually killed those children? Oh, they're dead. Okay. We don't know how, but they disappeared. Okay. Because there's another work later that's called Perkin Warbeck where it's like the kids yes. come back and they, it's like someone claiming that they were the original kids from the tower. Yeah, I also remember this. I'm having a war flashback about it. A Warbeck flashback? <laughs> yeah, we read so much. We did. We might want to cover that at some point, but um, <laughs> eh, we'll see. But no, it's kind of like, you know, Anastasia? Yes. And how like there was like claims that like Anastasia had gotten away from the Bolsheviks and like there were claims of people being her, etc., etc. Yeah. I think it's something like that more than anything else. Okay. I think that's very possible. But I think that, like, I wouldn't take it off the table just yet. Because we don't know. That's the thing about history. I mean, he did kill his brother, though. He had his brother killed, for sure. Are we sure about that? Yeah. Okay. I'll accept that. Dead, dead. I will accept your historical knowledge as the resident history minor. Okay. I'm not actually sure, but I'm like, "Mm, he killed so many people. You said it. Therefore, it is a fact. And everyone is going to believe that it is a fact because this is the most reliable English Lit podcast on the internet. Clearly, yes. Um, So I guess we can sing us out. Thank you so much for listening. This is not quite the wrap-up of the series, maybe. We thought it was going to be the wrap-up of the series. It sounds like we're going to be talking about Henry VIII next week. Yeah, it's going to be fun. We're going to have ideas as to why Henry VII didn't get a play. It's because he was just too perfect. Perhaps. Perhaps because he was boring. He was too perfect that it was boring. And then, yeah, we're going to be talking about Henry VIII. If you want to read along, um, it's not a really popular one, but the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, so CBC, in partnership with the Stratford Festival here in Ontario, in 2019, put on a stage production of Henry VIII. So it's available on their streaming platform for free if you're in Canada. If you're not in Canada, sorry. I don't know how that works for you. If you're not in Canada, sorry in general. (laughs) Not even just for that. That's the motto. (laughs) So yeah, if you want to read ahead, uh, you can. And uh, we're going to be shooting the shit. And it's interesting because is it really Shakespeare's play? Ooh. How exciting. I'm excited for this because I know nothing about this. Amy's going to be leading us on that podcast. I have some friends visiting from out of town, so I will be doing no research and uh, listening to your guidance completely, believing everything that you say like usual. Yeah. And that'll be fun. If you want to talk to us about this play or that play or any of the other plays we've covered or anything else you would like us to cover at all, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and threads. Sorry. It's not called Twitter anymore. It's not called Twitter anymore. X, Instagram, or threads at Unsighted Pod. You can also just like shout into a maple leaf and uh, we will probably hear you. Yeah, or like a bag of milk. A bag of oat milk. Might take longer, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much for listening. We hope to see you in two weeks. And as always, we're excited, unavailable. I quoted... I quoted too. And made a typo. Oh no! I made a typo. He corrected the <gasps> typo. Ah! That's really funny. I'm so sad! <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs>
not mentally stable enough to go through this right now. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay. I'm keeping that at the end. That's really funny. 